This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, first the Stanley Park ghost train, and now the Bright Lights train canceled. What's going on at the Vancouver Park Board? Plus, Canada orders three Chinese firms to exit lithium mining in our country. Has Canada actually developed a spine when it comes to dealing with China? And streaming with Stephen, we give you the load on what you need to add to your Netflix queue. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. The beloved annual Bright Nights fundraiser is returning to Stanley Park this holiday season, but wait for it, with one notable change to the program, the vintage train that normally carries families past the many glowing displays will not be running uh, this year's, Running during this year's event, uh, organizers have told us today. Officials said that the Bright Nights will still feature all the colourful displays, the giant reindeer and the tunnels of light, but the train was pulled from service earlier this year due to mechanical issues with the antique engines and passenger cars, which forced officials to cancel the Stanley Park Ghost train event for the third Halloween season uh, in a row. Uh, to say that uh, parents are um, frustrated and disappointed would be an understatement. Jeff Sove, who is the executive director of the BC Professional Firefighters Burn Fund, uh, spoke to our Jill Bennett uh, just a couple of hours ago. Uh, here's his comments in regards to uh, the cancellation. It is undeniably disappointing that the train will be cancelled this year, but these are your professional firefighters. Our focus has really been on still delivering a great, completely free Vancouver event. Um, but it will be more of a challenge to raise our the, the funds that, you know, we rely on to run our charitable. So we're hopeful that, you know, we've been doing this for 25 years. There are hundreds of uh, professional firefighters who, I mean, we have a crew here from Abbotsford today who um, come and set up this beautiful display uh, for the public and, um, we're hopeful that those who have made it an annual tradition will still come out and enjoy. That was uh, Jeff Sove, Executive Director of the BC Professional Firefighters Burn Fund. And as he said, the Burn Fund supports year-round programs for fire survivors, including Burn Camp and the Home Away Program for Families. So it's very important uh, for not only just the Burn Fund, but also for families. Just think about the memories you build with your young ones uh, taking that train. Joining me now to talk about this cancellation is Jordan Armstrong, Global BC's reporter and anchor, and he's followed the story very closely. Jordan, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Jazz. Thanks for having me. So when you heard the news like we did today, what was your immediate reaction? I wasn't at all surprised because I'd been waiting for this announcement for a couple of days. I did speak to folks at the Burn Fund earlier this week, and my sense was this is coming. And, you know, you mentioned, Jazz, that the train has been off the tracks going back a few months. It didn't run for the ghost train. And at the time, the statement from the Vancouver Park Board uh, made it sound like this was a- an issue of maintenance, of vintage equipment. Parts were hard to find, as well as, as they described it, it was hard to find the people with the specialized knowledge to maintain this type of equipment. And I have to say, that statement didn't really tell the full story, Jazz, so mm-hmm. I started looking into it. And a couple of things I have uh, figured out since is, You know, that statement, that initial statement from the park board made it sort of sound like, you know, this train was built 60 years ago and Bob the engineer took the blueprints to the grave. That's not the case. Hmm. This is a very, very common type of miniature railroad. If, if, If it's not the most common in North America, it's certainly one of them. There are hundreds of the type operating all over North America, including in British Columbia, Uh, The Richmond Country Farms operates the same type of train. The Greater Vancouver Zoo operates the very same type of train. Um, A farm in the Greater Victoria area also has one, as well as the Kamloops Wildlife Park. So essentially, Jazz, it's the Honda Civic of miniature railroads. Uh, I do understand that Stanley Park operates a smaller track gauge, 20 inches versus the more common 24 inches. However... The company that makes this railroad, uh, Chance Rides, out of Wichita, Kansas, Mm -hmm. is still around. They're still marketing this product. 
So I think it's a bit of a stretch for the park board to say, this is just a case of vintage outdated equipment. You can still get these trains um, off the shelf, so to speak. Uh, were you surprised that they dropped this? Uh, never mind news-wise for the public, but you have a new park board that's going to be sworn in on Monday, to my understanding. Why not wait? Why not consult with them? Uh, why uh, do this so quickly? I'm a bit surprised politically that they actually would do this. Well, this is interesting, and, and it does require further explanation uh, from the park board. Now, we did reach out to ABC Vancouver, obviously the party, which has won a majority on council and the park board uh, for comment on this. They're not commenting ahead of that swearing in. Um, as well, Jazz, I did just get a statement from Technical Safety BC. Mm-hmm. You know, we reached out to them. They do the inspection. They're the provincial agency that has to inspect uh, amusement rides, ski lifts, and uh, miniature railways. Um, and here's what they said. Now, they gave three main reasons for not passing the train um, in inspection. And here they are. Number one is corrosion and damage to both track lines and rail cars. Number two, and I think a lot of our listeners will find this interesting, is overgrown vegetation disrupting sight lines and decaying infrastructure. And three, requirement for a full condition report from a third-party contractor certified to inspect this type of train. Again, we go back to that initial statement from the park board mm-hmm. that this was unique antique equipment. Well, the second reason Technical Safety BC failed the train was because they didn't cut the vegetation and didn't maintain that properly. And I know what we've been hearing from our listeners for months now that they've been seeing that in many parks all over Vancouver. Um, you know, it doesn't seem like the park maintenance is what it once was. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when, when you've explained this to me with those three points, are corrosion and damage to both track lines and rail cars, overgrown vegetation. Well, first of all, you know, you have gardeners there. That should be done. Uh, the other two technical issues, requirements for a full condition report and corrosion and damage to both track lines and rail cars. If the priorities are there, if the mandate is there, if you say we have an obligation to our citizens because this is one of those unique events of the year. Uh, and this is where you build memories for Vancouverites, uh, no matter what age you are. I remember taking my son and my wife and I going down. It was a lovely evening. And um, I would encourage every uh, Vancouverite to do so, no matter where you live. It actually comes down to priorities. Like if you want a train yeah. system to be open and running by Christmas, it can be done. It should be done. It is not like we're sending a rocket to, to space here. It's a train. And as you said, Yes, it's an older train, but the parts are still out there, and it's not that unique. Well, and here's another sentence from the Technical BC statement that really jumps out at me, Jazz. Mm -hmm. They say, quote, Technical Safety BC made it clear to the train operator that as soon as the concerns were addressed, we would be able to inspect the train for public use without delay. So again, this inspection was carried out either in September or October. We got the news in early October. So it's been a few months since the park board has received this news. Um, I'd be curious to know what, if anything, has been done to address these issues. Seemingly, the second one in vegetation um, doesn't sound like it would be that hard of a fix. As you said, you get your grounds crews in there, you clean things up. There, you address one of the three main issues. The other thing that... um, you know, you have to also keep in mind, Jazz, is the other things that the park board has obviously um, not been keeping up as of late. You look at the report recently that uh, the vast majority of Vancouver community centers are in poor or very poor condition. We had the facade collapse at the Vancouver Aquatic Center recently. You look at the Jericho Pier, which was uh, left splintered after the storm a year ago. It's still closed. Meanwhile, you've got West Vancouver, which also saw its pier heavily damaged. Mm-hmm. hasn't reopened yet, but West Vancouver does have a plan and is well underway at repairing it. So some questions here for the park board. It is Canada's only elected park board. Vancouver taxpayers uh, pay more to have it. And, you know, as such, you think they would expect a superior level of service from Vancouver, uh, from Canada's only elected park board. But Given these examples and given the recent election results, it seems a lot of people don't think they're getting that. 
Well, I think it's, you know, this is my opinion only, but I, I really believe this is about priorities. If you make the train a priority, you could have fixed all of this. But we've been fighting over bike lanes. We've been uh, restaurants that are in Stanley Park. have been fighting the park board. We've talked about decolonizing the park. Don't get me wrong. I believe in reconciliation. I think it's important. But it's got to be part and parcel of the park doing the basics really well. And one of them is that train for Halloween and for Christmas, it's not a lot to ask for. And the way you've laid it out with the facts, my friend, uh, tells me that the priorities were somewhere else for that park board, or at least the majority that ran that park board. And uh, this is why we're in this mess that we're in right now. Jordan, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Thank you so much, Jazz. My pleasure. We learned uh, this week Elon Musk is set to cut about 3,700 jobs at Twitter, representing about half of the company's staff. The push to slash cause comes a week after the Tesla CEO took control of the social media company, following a completion of his $44 billion purchase of Twitter. Uh, Musk immediately fired, of course, Twitter CEO Prague Agarwal and many other uh, senior executives. Uh, Musk analysts, some analysts are saying Musk has overpaid for Twitter by about $20 billion and that he's now forced uh, to cut between 30 to 50 percent of the company's employees. Uh, in its most recent quarter, Twitter lost $270 million and its revenue slipped as advertising growth uh, slowed. And on Tuesday, Musk uh, tweeted a revamped verification process for Twitter users where anyone can get verified with a blue tick beside their account name as long as they're willing to pay $8 a month. Of course, there's been many other critics who say, look, there's a lot of even more negative stuff on, on Twitter now than there used to be. Uh, significant criticism of the way he's handled things the first week or so. So I thought it was time to call up our good friend Jesse Miller, who is a social media expert and founder of Mediated Reality, to walk us through in regards to what he's thinking and what he's seeing. Jesse, welcome. Chaz, as always, thank you for having me. So I know it's very early days, and, and it's you can't read too much into this stuff, but what are your thoughts so far in regards to his first few days as chief twit? Of Twitter. Okay, let's let's start with the purchase price. We know he overpaid. Uh, he was going to be held to that cost, no matter he wanted to or not. And defaulting on the purchase was going to cost him more money. So he kind of grinned down and and, and took it. Like that's just the way he, he is, right? Um, they they saw Tesla stock drop. SpaceX still has really good contracts with NASA, so he felt like economically he was still in a good position to leverage his businesses. But this is Elon Musk. He walked into headquarters carrying a porcelain sink. <laughs> to let that sink in. Like, there's parts of this that are not really in the traditional space of what business looks like. So this is where all these employees feel very much like their days were numbered. Some opted out ahead of what would they perceive to be their own layoffs. But the reality of it is, those who are hanging on, and a lot, a lot of Twitter employees are saying, hey, where's leadership? And this leadership's just hanging out with their golden parachutes. You know, Musk pulls a ripcord on them. They walk away with millions of dollars. And, and the thing is, is that their shares will then get purchased back by the company. So in that, um, he's doing a lot, but it doesn't mean that Twitter is going anywhere better. It might get significantly worse. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of the user base are just going to say, this is this is not a space I want to be. And, you know, are you a blue, are you a blue checkmark guy? Do you, do you have a verified account? Yes. I didn't ask for it, but they gave it to me. Yeah. So whether you got it in your term of politics or you got it in your term of journalism, I think, interestingly enough, we're going to see people say, hey, I'm fine with the blue checkmark as long as my employer is paying for it. We might see even politicians say, hey, once I get elected, I need to be verified. So let the taxpayer pay for it. But when it comes down to it, the eight bucks a month is a verification process for those who can spend eight dollars. And so what I prefer here is that we see widespread verification using technologies we already have in place and that Twitter become a better place for public discourse, which is ideally what Musk was kind of aiming for, right? You wanted to see the public square open up. Can he actually fix this? I mean, it, it, beyond just Twitter for a second, Facebook has its challenges. Each, each social media uh, uh, outlet has its it, challenges. Um, but can he fix Twitter? Because it, there is, you know, you got the bots, you've got, uh, you know, national governments that have the these farms that uh, uh, feed misinformation. You think Russia, you think China, you think many other uh, uh, nations. How does one company fix all of that? It doesn't. Uh, you know, that's the hard part here. Twitter actually found its success in being an open, open platform for anybody in the world to get onto. And so when we saw, um, you know, individuals fighting against governments and using Twitter as a platform to kind of circumvent state control of language, that's where Twitter had its heyday. And so over the past 10 years, when we've seen the rise of uh, politicians using this in a positive way, I mean, Barack Obama used Facebook and Twitter to get himself into a position of election. And the reality of it is when he was reelected in 2012, Mitt Romney tried to 
catch up and be cool on Twitter, and it fell horribly for him. The difference for 2016 was that Donald Trump was already a seasoned Twitter user where he would use the platform to bully or malign individuals, and he found a base that was comfortable with that. And so here's where Twitter right now has to decide, how does it want to operate? Is it going to be tiers where public service uh, agencies like police or fire don't have to pay, and that's kind of what we want for the societal good of communications? Do we see entertainment individuals only get verified because what they are doing is part of their brand? But I would like to see a verification process where individuals can just say something as simple as, you know, here's who I am. I'm putting my, my real name down here, put in some kind of verification so- software with AI facial recognition. We see that a lot with dating apps. Mm-hmm. And that way you can at least be a legitimate human being on the platform and we can run a minimal risk when it comes to people sharing information and then holding people accountable. But like to your point, the Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram stuff, I think a lot of people are just kind of getting tired of it. And these companies are looking for ways to pivot to make more money. Uh, final question. I, and I'm taking a bit of a, a right turn here. I just want to talk about talk about TikTok just for a moment. Yesterday, um, a member of the uh, FCC had mentioned that uh, the only way to deal with TikTok, because ultimately it's a company based in China, and any company based in China is ultimately answerable to the Communist Party of China. Uh, And every time anybody signs up for TikTok in Canada, the US, that is information technically that the Chinese government could have access to. Uh, And they've talked about potentially banning TikTok. I know countries like India have banned TikTok. Uh, Do you see that coming one day where where the US and potentially even Canada Canada says, you know what, this is a national security challenge for us. Our citizens are giving up information, and we're just going to ban it. Yes, well, India banned in 2020, and obviously a billion people in that country who want to get on TikTok still find ways of doing that through VPNs. There's not a lot of enforcement in that space. Mm -hmm. But just as a note, for Canadian listeners, we always kind of align ourselves with these American values of, you know, the states collecting data on you, we're going to protect you. Any Canadian who has a Facebook account or Instagram account, your information is as equally subjected to Homeland, Homeland Security looking at what you do. So if you go to the United States and you travel through YVR and you declare that you're going down to see family for a week, they have the ability to look at what you actually wrote on Facebook. And if you wrote, hey, go to work with my family down at the family bakery in San Francisco, guess what? Just because you told your family doesn't mean that you're telling the truth to Homeland Security as you enter the country. So anything here with this kind of rhetoric of like protecting information, it's just the United States getting really upset that another country is able to collect data from people and that they're not ahead of the cart when it comes to the cool social media platform. Mm. Well, it's a very interesting time, and uh, it's only week one with uh, with uh, Elon Musk. I can only imagine what a month is going to be like. Jesse, thank you so much, my friend. Thanks a lot, Jazz, as always. Well, Finance Minister Christia Freeland delivered a fall economic update today that warns of a potential recession in 2023, uh, presenting two fiscal forecasts based on whether or not that downturn occurs. Now, the update also announced uh, announced plans for a new tax on share buybacks and significant incentives for green energy investment uh, aimed at responding to um, a major package of tax and climate policy reforms uh, that were announced south of the border. Uh, in what government views is the most likely scenario in regards to uh, spending and dollars, Canada's economy will continue to grow modestly through next year, and the federal deficit for this fiscal year will be $36 billion, an improvement over the 52 a billion dollar deficit forecast in April, uh, which is driven in large part by higher than expected uh, inflation. Now, the update also says that uh, there is a potential for a surplus of four and a half billion dollars by 2027, 2028. Joining me now to make sense of all of this is CKNW business analyst Michael Levy. Good afternoon, Michael. Hey, Jazz. Well, what do you make of all of this? A lot of numbers being thrown around, uh, deficit after deficit after deficit, and a potential surplus by 20, uh, 2027, 2028. Of course, there's an election in between there uh, as well. What did you make of today's uh, fiscal update? My forecast for 2027, 2028 will be every bit as valid as Christian Freeland's. <laughs> and um, I have not got a winning record, but good on her for putting it out there. Four and a half billion dollars surplus. Um, I think my, my, my first thought is, is that if you are going to continue to spend, then you cannot take your deficit down because you cannot count on revenues tax revenues particularly, that are going to hold up compared to the absolute bonanza of tax revenues that the government got when everybody went back to work and businesses were humming on all eight cylinders. So um, that's a bit a, a, a bit tentative, I would say. Um, I, I 
got to think that uh, they are optimistic on uh, soft landing. I'm a little more pessimistic. Um, GDP slows to seven-tenths of one percent for the soft landing, and hard landing is almost a one percent shrinkage, so minus nine-tenths of one percent. I'm more on that uh, wavelength, Jazz. A jobless rate, 6.1. Uh, if it's soft landing, 6.6 percent. If it's a hard landing, anywhere in between. The deficits is where I have an argument of either 36 billion or 49 billion in 2023. I wanna have this conversation with you about January, whatever, and uh, I think the deficit's gonna be pushing on $50 billion, not 36. Wow. Now, one of the things that they uh, talked about today is the share, the stock buybacks. Now, the government, uh, uh, generally corporations buy their own stock from existing shareholders. It's a, a Practice that's very common. The intention is to introduce a corporate tax of two percent that would apply to the, the, I guess, the net value of the share buybacks. Uh, what does this do? Is this a question of just uh, uh, the corporations are making too much money? It's, it's one of those sort of middle class announcement that they make, and they're going to take a bit of it and uh, use it for other programs. This is a bit of a charade. Um, it, there is a 2% uh, um, tax on share buybacks. There is no doubt about that. That is targeting directly the oil and gas industry. Don't even think about the rest and the cost to them because uh, they have said to Canadian corporations, Canadian industrial companies, uh, that if you direct money towards green energy or green... Re Using green as the, the, the byword for anything that you're going to do to expand your businesses, to build on your businesses, you're going to get a 30% tax credit. That 30% tax credit, it won't take much to take care of the 2% uh, share buyback because they're going to get it back from another pocket, from the government. There's no doubt about that. Oil and gas uh, companies, the, the exploration or the uh, building of, of, of bigger uh, uh, resources here in, uh, in Canada, in Alberta, in Newfoundland, in order to pump more oil and gas, Canada doesn't want that. So um, that, that they can't spend in Canada because there's nothing to spend on. So the 2% and big profits that oil and gas are producing are going to go for government revenue. It's not going to hurt the banks. It's not going to hurt the other businesses. Mm -hmm. uh, in regards to inflation, in regards to what's happening in Ukraine, we're already talking about a potential energy shock in December uh, as uh, Europe uh, relies on energy from other parts of the world instead of Russia. Uh, that could spike energy. There's so many variables out there in regards to what's happening uh, globally. Um, even how accurate are these uh, kind of uh, report cards in the, in, in the grand scheme of things? Because you've gone through so many of them. How accurate are they? Uh, they, they, they can be accurate. Paul Martin, when he went to cut um, Canada's deficit and balance our books, he was right on in the years he did it. When I say right on, not on to the dollar or the penny, but he knew what he was doing. Uh, and um, he was right on. These aren't. There are just too many variables. I've got to tell you the biggest variable, and you didn't hear this word very often, I'm still looking for some numbers from the Canadian government. Inflation is the big question. You just nailed it. What happens if energy prices spike again over the winter? What happens if grains or, or, or wheat or foodstuffs spike over the winter? What happens if, and you can keep going on, what happens with, but Ukraine and Russia are the wild card, but there are other wild cards throughout the world. But I, I think inflation could play a big part of this scenario and where we're going, my thoughts are we're not going to know until it happens. So we can make all the forecasts we want. Inflation to me is the wild card and I look for the numbers and I didn't find them. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, we, uh, they're talking about oh, potentially a surplus in 2027. If you look at the, the revenue windfall just because of inflation, uh, looking at the numbers here, they're spending about 40%, 45% of that revenue windfall when they should probably be saving more. And I guess that's the, the answer at the end of the day. When government gets <laughs> revenue, they should be putting it away or cutting taxes somewhere. But in this case, they're spending about 45% of that revenue windfall already. Yeah. yeah, how about just cutting your deficit? I mean, this is the worst thing. Now, with interest rates going up, 
your cost of borrowing if your government is going up too. If interest rates go up by a percent, the cost of borrowing for government goes up by a percent. Those That revenue has to come from some, somewhere. So if we have inflation at a half of 1% when we started out and we now have inflation somewhere up around uh, 6%, 5.5%, well, the... Everybody knows that if you have a loan and it's a variable rate loan, which is what governments are paying on, on the government debt, that's our debt, then your uh, costs are going to go up because interest is costing you more. And I think that, the, as I said, uh, if inflation is not uh, controlled, if inflation starts to run wild again, Jazz, it's going to punch a lot of holes in this budget update. Yeah, absolutely. Michael, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Thanks, Jazz. Canada has ordered China to immediately sell its holdings in three Canadian mining companies as the need for investments in the extraction of critical minerals clashes with growing concerns over national security. Yesterday, Canada's industry minister, François-Philippe Champagne, said three Chinese companies would be required to divest from junior mining companies. Uh, The order comes after a multi-step review by Canada's national security and intelligence agencies, which determined that the three companies must leave the Canadian mining industry on national security grounds. Now, critical minerals and metals like lithium, cadmium, nickel, and cobalt, things that we don't ever think about or talk about, well, they're essential for clean energy technologies, including turbines and electric cars and solar panels. They're also necessary uh, part of laptop computers and rechargeable batteries. And in recent years, China has become the largest refiner and processor of these critical minerals, building an extensive supply chain that relies on overseas mines for raw materials that includes countries like Canada. Joining me now to talk about uh, this issue is uh, Jeremy Nuttall. He's a Vancouver-based investigative reporter for the Toronto Star. Uh, He has also reported and lived in China for many years as well. Jeremy, thank you for joining us. No problem. Thank you for explaining why these uh, minerals are important off the top. I was worried I might have to do that. (laughs) (laughs) It is. And, you know, we don't even think about these things, but they're so integral for a modern uh, 21st century uh, economy. Um, when I heard this, uh, not that I did cartwheels uh, <laughs> during the show yesterday, but I, I was kind of thinking, did we just find our spine? Uh, what did you make of, of um, this announcement yesterday? Very similar to that. I mean, I, I thought the same thing. Like, not, not only did we just find our spine, but why? Um, it was just in January when the, uh, the federal liberal government was uh, being criticized for not uh, taking the, these acquisitions seriously enough. And they were actually defending not doing a more fulsome security review of these uh, these purchases. And, you know, suddenly for them to turn around, uh, I found that to be a bit odd. Um, and I'm still wondering what's behind it. I think it could maybe be a more, a more formal um, or forceful uh, posture from the U.S. and Australia and our other allies when it comes to China investments. Um, but, we, you know, I'm still sort of just waiting to see... Uh, you know, what, what, what could be the telltale sign of why they made this decision now? And do you think, I mean, it seems like it's a collective um, a change in mindset. For decades, business leaders, political leaders have said that, you know, we keep investing in China, we will change China. And one would argue China has changed us, that we finally have to wake up after two, maybe three decades of this investment, this trade. Uh, it's been one way in some cases. And this may be the litmus test beyond the whole Meng Jiawei issue that we've been talking uh, about for, for a long time. Do you think this is the litmus test that finally says, you know what, it is now time to get tough and draw the line in the sand? Yeah, it, it could be. I think that for us, though, again, it, it would be driven by our allies because Canada has been traditionally quite weak on all things uh, China when it comes to defending Canadian interests. I mean, if you look the other week when we have the, these reports of these uh, police stations in Toronto, um, you know, when it first came out, Canada was very weak on that, and they didn't really start to to make some noise until some other countries did as well. So, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'd say this is definitely a first step. It would look like. I mean, a couple a couple weeks ago, um, uh, Champagne Minister Champagne had actually said that Canada would be looking to decouple from China more, um, which I guess you know would have been the first I think sign. But I didn't I didn't think there would be such a big a big hit coming so soon after that. So. Yeah, it's definitely a sign that something's coming, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, how do you think this is um, being, will be taken by China? 
Well, they're already upset about it. Uh, I mean, I think I think it was last last week in the Global Times there was an editorial uh, regarding Champagne's original uh, comments about decoupling from China, uh, where they just started, you know, the typical lashing out and insulting Canada and suggesting that nobody wants to do trade with Canada anyway, which is, I mean, an absolute laugh, especially uh, when you consider how much uh, how many resources Canada has, etc. Um, so I think that we're going to see in the next week or so probably some more of that similar kind of lashing out um, from Chinese state media and potentially even from uh, Chinese uh, diplomats uh, here in Canada. Mm. Uh, do you think Australia, which, you know, we brought up, I brought this argument uh, in this conversation with you many times before, uh, in regards to how 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 quickly and forcefully they've pushed back on China, and they do a lot of trade with China in regards to resources uh, and many other things, but they as a country, smaller than Canada, have pushed back. Is that still sort of the high watermark for Canada to achieve and, and to be strong and to push back when it comes to, if there's one country we can learn from that it's similar in size, one could argue, it would be Australia in regards to how to deal with foreign policy in China? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that uh, size-wise... Uh it's de- size-wise and trade-wise, it definitely has been because Australia they actually went um, and stood up to China on a number of issues, and um, d- despite that, their their trade with China actually increased. China attacked some of their key industries, uh, wine, and I believe beef uh, was the other one. But overall, it, it still went up. So I think that yeah, that's the that's sort of the area where Canada wants to, I think, uh, emulate just because it's a similar-sized uh, country. Um, you know, similar economic resources, etc. Um, and Australia, one of the big, big things that they did was a uh, laws that prevented uh, or at least tackled uh, any kind of foreign interference, which is something that Canada has been reluctant to do so far. But we'll see if I, I don't know if that's going to be happening or not. Um, but it was on the table uh, via the Conservative bill. Uh, a couple a couple of years ago. Hmm. Well, it'll be very interesting to see what transpire in, transpires in the next weeks, uh, next few weeks, and, and months in regards to if there's other things that will be coming from Ottawa in regards to our dealings with China. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Thanks, Jess. Have a good afternoon. as the Ottawa Senators begin the process of selling the team following the death of owner Eugene Milnick, a Canadian Hollywood icon and Vancouver icon uh, is reportedly showing some interest. Reports say that Ryan Reynolds is very interested in buying the team with the intention of keeping it in the Ottawa region. Joining me now uh, is our contributor, John Jang, to talk a little bit about uh, Ryan Reynolds and his desire to buy the Ottawa Senators. Hello, John. Hey, good afternoon, Jazz. Uh, for the record, we tried to get Ryan Reynolds on the show today, but, uh, you know, a little he's, busy, I guess. He's got a lot on his plate right now. I think maybe he's editing one of his uh, Deadpool movies. Maybe that's it. Yes. Um, yes. I, I, as I was sort of laying down the, the basics of this story, uh, one of the news, one of the sources that a news organized uses, a source close to the actor told People Magazine, and I vowed never to say a source close to the <laughs> told People Magazine, but it's one of those stories that does meld the sports world and Hall. Hollywood. What do you yeah. make of all this with uh, Mr. Reynolds' uh, name being thrown around? I think it's kind of fascinating. Uh, long have hockey fans in Canada, you know, wanted to see more, I guess, local ownership uh, for a lot of these teams. Strong owners, owners that care about teams, owners that people can, I don't know, somewhat relate to. And not trying to take too many shots, but here in Vancouver, there's been big discussions about you know getting ownership groups that uh, would care more for the team and do things a little bit better in terms of how fans uh, sort of view the future of the franchise. For a guy like Ryan Reynolds to come in, I realize most people only associate him with Hollywood jazz like Deadpool and Blade Trinity and a whole bunch of other movies that he's been in. But he's also already a credible sports owner if you consider that he's a co-owner of Wrexham a football team in England a soccer team in England Uh, so he's actually kind of got the right credentials for anyone that's trying to buy an NHL team right now Mm -hmm. Um, generally when when you hear of celebrities um, wanting to buy a franchise it's not like they buy the majority share. It's always like a small minority share. Um, in many ways, they're, they're, they're important for promotion, sitting in the front row or things of that sort. I think of sort of the Brooklyn Nets and Jay-Z. Um, other names have been thrown around, even the Phoenix Suns. They've talked about uh, President Obama being part of a buying part of a ownership team that might buy the Phoenix Suns right. basketball team. I mean, that's where he would fit in, or do you think it would be much bigger? Because the cost of the Senators, it's... Uh, 
I would call it a small market team, and it's still significant, isn't it? Yeah, we're talking, I mean, close to actually a little bit more than half a, half a billion dollars, right? So you, you need quite a bit of money. And I looked up Ryan Reynolds, his, his net value, which is still, it's a lot better than mine, I'll tell you that. But it's still <laughs> nowhere close to the actual price tag of, a, of an actual NHL franchise. So uh, he would probably be a, a part owner, a minority owner. But there are examples of this already having been a precedent in the NHL Jazz. You look at the Seattle Kraken, mm-hmm. they have essentially three different owners, and a few of them are celebrities too like jerry bruckheimer of course famous uh, hollywood producer oh, wow. uh, you look elsewhere in the nhl mario lemieux who was a former player of course legendary mario lemieux mm-hmm. still co-owner of the pittsburgh penguins the team that he played on so there is examples realistic ones where celebrities have come in and whether it's a small share or half share or sometimes a majority share they can actually be owners in the nhl yeah i mean i think of uh, lebron james um, i mean he's uh, he he makes well over 80 90 million dollars from what, what i read in regards to salary and endorsements and uh, he's made a lot in his career michael jordan's another example and here's a guy worth uh, 1.5 1.6 billion dollars he bought the charlotte Hornets at a much in a much different era mind you Mm -hmm. and those costs have gone up significantly i guess ultimately whatever you pay where you make your money is hanging on to it for 10 or 15 years it's just that it builds up in value and it costs a lot more at the end of the day doesn't it i mean i think even the ottawa senators have gone up in value by 20 percent just in the past year well, that's it. And the Ottawa Senators for a long time across all the Canadian teams, they've kind of been the neglected cousins, right? Because not everyone was talking so much about the Senators, especially in Ontario, where the Toronto Maple Leafs will continue to reign supreme. They're the center of the universe. We get it. Uh, but look at the work that Ryan Reynolds has done again with Wrexham. Uh, look, they're not an uber competitive soccer team, but what he's done is actually transformed their relevance. Uh, social media accounts alone for Wrexham when he became part owner, their Twitter followers grew from 45,000 to just under 210,000. Their TikTok, non-existent when Ryan Reynolds took over. Jazz, they're close to half a million followers on TikTok now. So they're one of the most popular football teams in in England, or sorry, in, in Wales, technically. Uh, but they're just not a very competitive team. And I don't think that really matters because people now from all over the world know the name Wrexham. So mm-hmm. that might be the Ryan Reynolds effect with the Ottawa Senators, bringing it back to relevancy and then letting the actual majority owner take care of actually building a strong hockey team. Yeah, no, that that's a very good point. And we forget he's a, he's a business person too. I mean, like a lot of actors, he's branched out. He's got um, uh, the Aviation Gin. Aviation yeah. Gin. And doesn't he own a cell phone company or he's invested in one as well? I'm sure he's invested in a bunch of things. When I was in Korea, he was on billboards for just about everything. Was so he really? He had, yeah, he's, this, he's a superstar. He has international <laughs> acclaim because of the works that he's done in movies. And, and he's, he's just one of the most beloved, I guess, Canadian stars that you can think of right now today. Uh, but, you know, it did get us thinking, right, Jazz? Like, what mm-hmm. about other owners? What about other celebrities? And if we're trying to name famous local Vancouverites that could maybe one day own a sports team. We had a few in mind. So with that, with that said, uh, we, I know we got a couple of clips here. We got producer Phil filling in for Ryan today. Uh, Phil, why don't we fire one up here? I'll let you choose gambler's pick. Uh, uh, some of the owners that could po- you know, possibly be NHL owners one day. That sounds good. Do we have, uh, was it Michael Buble? We, uh, not Buble, oh, but we do have Seth Rogen. this particular gentleman. Yes. All right, let's go with this. Hey, Vancouver, it's Seth. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine Seth Rogen uh, buying uh, 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 or owning the Vancouver Canucks? The Eccles got tired of it and said, "Okay, we're going to sell it." And uh, some of these celebrities came along, and it was Seth Rogen. I think he Why would not? be hilarious. He would be well, hilarious. That's it. I mean, oh. he grew up here. I mean, I mean, the guy knows Vancouver in and out. He loves representing Vancouver. Uh, we'd have some. I think some very interesting, like special event days. You know, the Canucks like cele- celebrating some holidays. Uh, <laughs> April twentieth would be a fantastic day for the Vancouver Canucks. Should that, Seth Rogen be an owner? That's right, and I'm sure the uh, the smoking area outside Rogers Arena would be very, very <laughs> might even have smoking inside if you can bring that back. Who knows? That's right. Well, let's go with uh, let's and let's. So that's number one. If the accolades decide yes. to sell, who's our next Vancouver area celebrity here? Let's play this. I'm sad for the people of Lou Lemon who I care so much about that have really had to face the brunt of, of my actions. 
That was Chip Wilson from Lululemon. Namaste. Namaste. Namaste, Jazz. And, and you know, he and uh, his wife donated like $100 million um, uh, to preserve oh, yeah. parks here uh, in, uh, in BC. So certainly they have the dollars. And I guess the Canucks would be um, wearing Lululemon attire for sure. Look, the Canucks might not be the best team with Chip Wilson as the owner, but they would be the most fashionable team with Chip Wilson as the owner. We're talking kombucha juice machines inside the locker, maybe in between every shift. You just get a nice shot of kombucha, you're ready to go, and get your uh, your namaste. Your, uh, the most flexible team in the league, maybe physically speaking, too. Oh, I, I would a look- lot, lot of upside here, Jazz. Who and, knows? Yeah, and in between periods, we do a little bit of yoga, a little downward dog, yeah, just to relax. Yeah. And we're a little too tense, so there you go. Now, the third third person we were talking about as a potential owner, we were throwing this in as a Vancouver celebrity, David Suzuki. Take a listen. We're in deep, deep doo-doo, and they've been telling us, <laughs> the leading experts, for over 40 years. Deep, deep doo-doo. Deep, deep doo-doo. Doo-doo-loo-doo. Doo-doo. <laughs> now, could you imagine David Suzuki winning the Vancouver? First of all, there'd be a paper cup fee. Admit that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, it's a shame because the Seattle Kraken, their, their stadium, their arena is called Climate Pledge Arena. You might just have another one in Vancouver now if David Suzuki was the owner. Climate Pledge Arena 2.0. That's we're bigger, great. we're better, and we're all in doo-doo. And so there'd be a bicycle go. lane for sure to Rogers Arena. <laughs> a lot of lockers there. Oh, my God. There was so much fun. Welcome back to the Chat Jewel Show. It's November 3rd. I have not heard the Baywatch theme song as the intro to one of our segments. But you know what? We'll take it. Thank you so much, Phil Figueredo. Hey, folks, it's Jazz Joe Hall. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the Ottawa Senators being up for sale and celebrity and Vancouver icon Ryan Reynolds uh, saying he's very interested in buying the team. We're joined by uh, our colleague John Jang. We're just talking about him as a potential uh, purchaser of that team. But we also talked about what if the Aquilinis sold the Canucks? Uh, who could? Uh, who would be a great celebrity owner? We were talking a little bit about David Suzuki, uh, the environmentalist, Chip Wilson, of course, of Lou Lemonfane, and Seth Rogen, uh, the comedian and um, purveyor of uh, wonderful types of cannabis, of course. Uh, give us a call on the open line. We'd love to hear from you in regards to who you think would make a great celebrity owner for the Vancouver Canucks. Let's go to the open line. Let's go to Bapinder in Burnaby. Hi, Bapinder. Hi. Hi. I have a good idea. I think this will be the best than uh, anybody else. How about I would like to nominate Pamela Anderson. Pamela Anderson. (laughs) That's a great idea. I mean, she is known worldwide, and that show was syndicated, Baywatch, uh, around the world. She is an icon. And actually, I think she was discovered. I mean, the, the famous story goes when she was at a BC Lions game. And one of the cameramen, when they shoot into the crowd, saw her and one of the executives from Molson's, I think it was, eventually watching the game, said, who is that person? And that's how she shot to fame. So, yeah, that's a great idea, Bupinder. Well done, my friend. She would be interested, I think, in purchasing a share of the Vancouver Canucks. What do you think, John? Yeah, I think that's a solid pick. Obviously, a local celebrity and uh, somebody that has a lot of money. So I could see that being a realistic route. Why didn't not? She, didn't she move back to the island, too? I, I think- believe she has. And... It wasn't that long ago she attended one of the Vancouver Canucks games. I think she was in a suite somewhere. I remember the cameras catching footage of that because anytime there's a high-profile celebrity, you know, you gotta you gotta single them out and put them on the jumbotron. So exactly, exactly. Uh, let's go to uh, thanks for your call, Bupinder. Let's go to Cameron and Chilliwack. Hi, Cameron. Hey uh, guys, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. What's on your mind? Who's your suggestion? Oh, I'm I'm just curious if Murray Peasant is still alive. <laughs> uh, what? He- what he did to the Lions in the 80s, like, absolutely killing them. Um, and I figure after he's done that with the Canucks, anybody can buy them because he'll run them into the ground. <laughs> and if, if, if you don't know who Murray Pezum is, he was a very well-known stock promoter uh, in the 80s and 90s here in Vancouver, the Vancouver Stock Exchange. In the, that era of the stock exchange, they would literally be selling cancer cures uh, to anybody who would buy them. It was, we were known around the world as the scam capital. And I think ABC actually ABC uh, sent a crew here. They did a, a scathing, I think it was 2020, a scathing report. So Marie Pezum was part of that crowd. But he was very entertaining when he was the Lions owner. And uh, But he, he, he reporters loved him because he would give you a great quote and he would do the silliest of things to promote uh, the team, that's for sure. Uh, let's go to uh, Dale in Maple Ridge. Is it Dale? Hey, Jazz, how are you? I'm good, sir. What's on your mind? Well, if somebody can buy and uh, who deserve to buy, 
uh, Vancouver Canucks, it'll be the Ryan Beatty, um, who's you know was one of uh, uh, you know partner in, in the starting when Arvidini and Gallardi they all got together. That's and right. I think he he can run it too better than Francesco. But Francesco, I think in 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 the room, everybody in their their um, they hate him. You know, um, so so that's from inside. You know, I know, and somebody told me, you know, they just don't like that guy. And Dale, thank, thanks for your call. I appreciate it. And uh, <laughs> well, Ryan Beatty is a very well-known executive. His family's in the, in the construction business, and yes, uh, they were at one point going to purchase them with the, I believe, the Aquilinis and the Gallardi family. The Gallardi family now, uh, I think, own the Dallas Stars, so they've got Correct. their team yeah. as well, a long-time um, family here. Uh, we've got about 30 seconds. I just want to get one more person in. David from Port Moody. How are you? I'm fine, Jess. How are you? Good. Good. Thank Talk you for holding. I appreciate your patience. I want to get you in. Who would you yeah, like no to worries. see by yeah, the Canucks? No, I, 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 I think Bruce Allen would be a good owner because I think he'd smack those guys around, get them in shape. You know, uh, <laughs> I can see Bruce uh, being a good uh, coach as well. So oh, he would be great to bring him in during the uh, first period or second period to give him his, uh, give us his analysis of how the team is playing, and he would not hold back. You're absolutely no, right. I like that, Jess. Think about the celebrities he could bring in as well. So oh, yeah. Oh, that would yeah. the musical acts alone for the anthem or, or uh, between periods and everything. That's a great suggestion, David. Thank you so much. Uh, John, you were saying? Yeah, sorry, Jazz. I just I was going to say because his connections to guys like Michael Bublé. You you get Bruce Allen as owner. You get Michael Bublé being your you know your performer at every intermission basically for forty one games out of the year. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in too. Those are great suggestions, everybody. Thank you so much. I was just looking at the weather forecasts uh, for the next few days, and it's raining quite a bit of rain the next couple last next couple of days. Sorry, and of course over the weekend as well. So more reason to stay at home and uh, put on a movie or a show with uh, lots available on our streaming services. Joining me now to talk about what we will be seeing over the next few days uh, available to um, uh, on various streamers is our Stephen Chang. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Jazz. How are you, sir? I'm good. Uh, you know, I'm not enjoying this weather, so I'm looking forward to staying in. That's just what I want to do this weekend. <laughs> well, there's lots looks like uh, available out there in regards to uh, content. Uh, what do you got for us this week? Well, you know what? Let's start it off with a movie that's coming out tomorrow. Um, you're familiar with Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger Things? Yes, I am. Yes. So she is also known as Enola Holmes, uh, who is Sherlock Holmes's sister. Mm. Well, they had a movie that came out uh, a couple years ago, 2020, and now there's a sequel, Enola Holmes 2. So this one's more focused on Enola Holmes herself starting her own detective agency, kind of like following the footsteps of her brother played by Superman himself, Henry Cavill. Oh. Yeah, so this was just her kind of navigating the, um, just the, the society and like how hard it is to be a uh, female detective for hire at the time and just more mysteries unraveling. Uh, here's the trailer for it. Is it true you find lost people? Yes. My sister. She disappeared a week ago. At last, I would be a detective in my own right, worthy of the home's name. <sighs> Dare I ask? <laughs> now this the the first uh, the first movie did very well, didn't it? Yes, it did. It was very well received. A lot of people loved it. I liked it too. It was pretty good. I haven't seen it, so I will make a note of that one. I think that one looks really interesting. Uh, now, you've got another one on Netflix as well? Yeah, so for this one, I believe that a lot of people are going to be very hyped up about this. Uh, the Crown. Ah, yes, 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 yes. We're very familiar with The Crown, uh, the show that revolves around the life of the late Queen Elizabeth II. And this is season five. It's not coming out this weekend, but it's coming out next Wednesday on the 9th. So this one's going to be interesting because this season is going to focus on the 90s. And a lot has happened in the 90s in the royal family. You know, we're talking about Charles and Diana's uh, marital turmoil, the Queen's horrible year in 1992. And, of course, the death of Princess Diana, who in this uh, season is played by Elizabeth Debicki, who was in The Great Gatsby, Tenet, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And the whole cast is actually revamped because uh, the first few seasons, they kind of casted the characters based on... Uh, the age at the time so like a younger queen elizabeth but this time we're getting an older one played by imelda staunton who is mostly known for being dolores umbridge in the harry potter series mm. and jonathan price uh the high sparrow in the game of thrones uh plays prince philip 
Oh, wow. I mean, it, it, this particular series, uh, I mean, it, it, it sort of transcends any age group that really likes it. Like the, the first one that you were talking about, Enola Holmes, it is probably directed towards uh, a younger generation, although I'm sure the story story travels very well. But this one plays very well with whatever demographic we're talking about. That's right. Yeah. If you're one who is uh, more curious about the royal family and the monarchy, uh, this, def- this is definitely a great show for it. And, you know, the, the trailer itself is just very suspenseful. Uh, suspenseful. So, you know, let's play a clip right here. The royal family is in genuine crisis. Have royal scandals damaged the country's reputation? The House of Windsor should be binding the nation together, setting an example of idealized family life. It's a situation that cannot help but affect the stability of the country. We can all remember the moment we found out that uh, Princess Diana had died. I still remember we were out camping and, and we were able to get a little bit of a radio signal. So this is going to carry very well in regards to we all sort of remember that era, that time. Uh, and I expect it to be a blockbuster on day one uh, for Netflix when, when it does come out on November 9th. Now, I've, I've told you before, I'm not a huge fan of reality shows, but I'm in the minority <laughs> here and I know that already. Well, Mr. Joe Hall, one question I have you is... Um, have you ever thought about looking back in the past and thinking of somebody who you could have had a relationship with, but it just never happened? <laughs> no, I don't. Well, no, my, I do don't. I have a show for you? <laughs> what if the person you're meant to spend your future with is from your past? Oh. One by one, people from your past will enter through the portal. Shut up. We met at confirmation. I haven't talked to her since high school. What the hell? You're going to kill me. What? What's your name again? <laughs> so, so this is like literally if you had a high school crush, you didn't have the guts to ask somebody out. They potentially, the producers find this person along with many others and they bring them back. That's right. This show is called The One That Got Away and this is on Prime. And this came out in June earlier this year. So it's an American dating reality show hosted by singer Betty Who, who I have no idea who she is, but I, that's that, that. It doesn't matter right now. Uh, so six people are in a house and they're searching for a soulmate. But then they go to this portal in the backyard with a pool and through the portal walks through some random person they could have had a thing with from uh, from their past. It could be from high school, college. One contestant found someone who they just walked into at a convention one day. So anything can happen, Jazz. That's the beauty about these reality shows. They're garbage but they're good garbage. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, they're content for a rainy day when you want to do nothing else and you don't want to think too much either. But I like the premise. If, if you feel that the, there's that one that got away and you may give a second chance, uh, why not? That's for sure. Exactly. Stephen, thank you, my friend. Thank you, sir. All right. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.